Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. So you're telling me that with a small $25,000 investment in Chemaway, I can immediately start protecting my family and loved ones from the harsh effects of government-sprayed chemtrails and be on the way to owning my own six-figure multi-level marketing business? Yes, our patented formula defends against aluminum bioengineered government bacteria, the tears of demons, black helicopter exhaust, and more. And if you act now, We'll throw in, at no additional expense, the new heart blanket for use during artificial earthquakes generated by that evil government station in Alaska. Yes, Kimaway is the only solution approved by the Internet. Our next guest is here to explain how anyone can easily claim hundreds of thousands or even millions of dollars from the federal government. Thanks, Jimmy. Using this one weird trick, which the IRS definitely doesn't want you to know about, you can petition the government to redeem your straw man an artificial legal entity created at your birth to sell the value of your lifetime of labor to international bankers. That's fascinating. And anyone can take advantage of this? Well, they can if they attend my three-day seminar. For a small $450 fee, you can be on your way to claiming what's rightfully yours. You see, the lamestream media won't tell you this, but QAnon has accurately predicted everything that's happened over the past two years. If we can just read through some of these Q drops, I, th- I think you will see... Listener, they've tried to silence us. They've tried to take InfoWars off of all of their modern social platforms. But we're still here. We're still going to tell everyone the truth about all of these false flag shooting incidents. They're a plot to take your guns. The goddamn globalists will not win. We will. Jesus, Jesuit, what are you watching? My metaphorical television whose channels are programmed with upsetting yet conveniently themed content, as usual. You sound bummed. Not bummed, exactly. But why do people still believe in chemtrails or false flag incidents or QAnon, for Christ's sakes? We already debunked all these topics, and yet they persist. It's almost as if these conspiracy theorists don't care whether or not what they believe is true. But that can't be right, can it, Straniacs? Obviously not. No, all these folks need is a little follow-up. Some additional discussion of the latest occurrences that put even more nails in the coffins of their erroneous beliefs. Well, challenge accepted. We're going to spend an episode going back through everything that's happened with a bunch of our earlier topics since the original episodes were produced. And that way, everyone will learn exactly why they should stop believing these silly things once and for all. Please, nobody tell him. I'm not sure he can take it. Yep, this plan is airtight, so it's time for a very special edition of The Paranoid Strain.
Introduction for them all. Anti-Semite protocols. Climatitis sovereigns. What do they believe again? Chemtrails spraying from the planes. Harp is making hurricanes. Infowars just false flags. 9-11 truth. QAnon for Trump's insane. 9-11 truth again. Earth is flat. Al Jones is back. Denver airport's out of whack. Is my alien murder sect? Oswald shot him in the neck. Apollo fakes. Vaccine flakes. Reality for Christ's sake. We covered man. for the fucking village all yeah yeah welcome back to the paranoid strain and welcome to all of the newbie straniacs we're very very happy to have you join us every 57 to 61 days precision we gather together to bury conspiracy theories not to praise them we do this so that you can better understand why your kids new non-binary bff your mom's senior aqua zumba teacher And especially your wife's much younger brother, Rick, who found God, which on balance is probably a good thing, given how fucked up Rick's decision-making was in the absence of a higher power, but did he really have to go and choose Jainism? I mean, don't get me wrong, it's absolutely one of the great world religions with an impeccable pedigree of nonviolent coexistence with other faiths, but now you can't even use bug spray when he visits? For two weeks at a time, I might add? Anyway, why all of those folks believe such super odd conspiracy theories? I'm your host, Fearful Jesuit, and I admit, it was me. I put the bomb in the bomb ba bomb ba bomb But I'm a cut the next motherfucker who accuses me of putting the ram in the ramalama ding dong. Usually, this is the point in the show where I would begin to usher you through the ins and outs of a brand spanking new conspiracy theory topic, but as we noted earlier, this is a very special episode, one that is shorter, tighter, and more contemporary than our usual epic spanning deep dives. In addition, the only topics we'll be covering here are those we have already covered in previous episodes. We'll fill you in on all the goings-on that have gone on since we last spoke of them. No lengthy interview, no profile in crazy, lots of interstitial music. In other words, as my associate so succinctly puts it, this is a Oh, one more thing for newer listeners. If any of these updates pique your interest, remember our full in-depth episodes on each topic are only a download away. Quick hit, update to the update. Hi there. This is Fearful Jesuit in June of the deeply strange year 2020, interrupting the late in 2019 Jesuit who originally recorded this. As you can probably tell, if only by the fact that this episode has been delayed by about five months from its original planned air date, things got weird after we wrapped this one up, mostly due to the sudden ascent of coronavirus-related conspiracies, which necessitated a change of schedule. Having completed our two COVID shows, we were prepping this one for a later-than-anticipated release, but realized that events have developed since our original recording that mean we have to make some small updates. I'll be dropping in at a few points throughout this show to provide additional context so that these topics can be fully compliant with what passes for reality at this point. And with that, back to some vintage, old-school Jesuit. So let's get started at the very, very beginning. At the risk of repeating myself, welcome to the Paranoid Strain. This little venture is the result of my lifelong fascination with why people believe really weird things, how they keep on believing, even when their ideas are disproved, and how they eventually start believing every crazy idea that hoves into their field of view. Finally, in some cases, 
those weird beliefs can reach critical mass among a whole group of people and even impact the real world. You know, where you and I live. In other words, it's a practical guide for those who are fascinated by conspiracy theorists. Now that Ah! Is that what the show used to sound like? Buy a better microphone, for Christ's sakes. Yes, dear listener, that was from our introductory episode. We still think it's a good encapsulation of what the show set out to do, even if the production is a bit more rudimentary than our current standards would dictate. The topic here was, in essence, the idea of conspiracy theories in general, how you can recognize them, etc. So there's not a whole lot to update, except... Do you feel like there are any other differences to the style or type of paranoia you run into in Europe as opposed to the U.S.? It does seem a bigger feature of American discourse, but it it rides on uh, tendencies that are probably universal in the human mind to see sort of hidden agents where they're not there. So what what is American about it? Well, it just it just seems to have more uh, deeper roots in American. You could hypothesize about why it could be. That was taken from the inaugural episode's interview with economist journalist Lane Green. His point about America being more of a conspiracy nuthouse than Europe, at least in mainstream terms, made sense back in the summer of 2017. But given his location in the UK and what has transpired there over the past couple of years, Brexit, Brexit and more Brexit, we wondered if he might have any new thoughts on this topic. So we sat down to discuss a bunch of news articles and asked him a few questions. And this is what he had to say. He didn't say no interview. He said no lengthy interview. So the last time we spoke, I think I said that conspiracy theory just has a lot less of a purchase on the sort of imagination of the people in Britain than it does in the United States. And I think there are a few good reasons for that, which I can get into in a minute. But there's such a breakdown of trust between the two main political uh, sides right now that more people are looking to a sort of nefarious explanation for what's going on in lots of arenas than in the past. You have the traditional left-right labor-conservative split, which has now been partly cross-cut by a pro- and anti-Brexit split, which is really coming to dominate the country. But it's making for a very poisonous politics in which everybody thinks everybody else is kind of doing something underhanded to win. There is the belief, for example, that Boris Johnson doesn't really want Brexit, that he never did, even though he's now the symbol of the pro-Brexit campaign. The leader of the Labour opposition, Jeremy Corbyn, his uh, devotees think that the press and the elites are sandbagging him on purpose, that he's actually extraordinarily popular and has great ideas, but there is some kind of conspiracy to keep him 20 points behind Boris Johnson in the polls and such. Some force is manipulating are otherwise pure politics. And it's you're hearing more of it. I still wouldn't call it as conspiracy-oriented as America, not by a long shot, but you're starting to see more of that kind of thing. Whether this is just a function of Brexit or if things are changing sort of long-term is a, is a good question because uh, European politics is changing a lot across the board. Lots of countries are getting more American-style right-wing populist parties, not quite exactly in the mold of Donald Trump, but people who are natural allies of Trump. They don't like the European Union. They don't like sort of, in air quotes, globalists. And they don't like foreigners, immigration, international rules. They consider themselves old-fashioned patriots. And to some extent, this is uh, crossing old left-right lines. They'll have right-wing populists cultural policies, but they'll also be in favor of a big welfare state only for the local population, the sort of white indigenous population, and not for sort of hordes of immigrants is how this gets portrayed. So this is starting to happen elsewhere, and that shows up in the, in the pro and anti-Brexit thing. But Brexit is a massive constitutional crisis facing Britain. How to get Brexit done is just taxing the system that wasn't built for it. So right now, you're getting a lot of anger over the conservative government's attempts to push Brexit through by suspending parliament for a while, that was declared unlawful. And so there's just a bunch of unprecedented things happening almost every single week. 
and it's making people reach for more kind of conspiracy-minded explanations than, than they used to do. In order to win these things, uh, people often point to the polls and say, we have the will of the people behind us. And so naturally that gets you into a game of working the polls themselves. People point to polls because they want to be able to say that they have the will of the people, the true will of the people on their side. It's an old sort of populist trick. I have the, I have the people's real interest at heart, and indeed they're with me. So when a poll comes out and shows that there is now a narrow majority for Remain against Brexit, that's partly because the 2016 vote for Brexit skewed very, very heavily old. Older people wanted to leave. Younger people overwhelmingly wanted to stay. And in just three years' worth of deaths has probably reduced the number of of levers below the majority line, plus a few switchers who have seen the process be such a mess that now we see there's probably a narrow remain majority. But people who want to leave say that those polls are skewed. They're lies. They're being manipulated. The same thing goes for Jeremy Corbyn, who languishes very low in the polls. Despite an incredibly unpopular government, the opposition is even more unpopular. Well, Corbyn's people say those polls must be either rigged or the press is so relentlessly anti-Corbyn that the people just don't get to see how awesome he is, and therefore the polls aren't a true reflection of his awesome ideas and personality and leadership. And if the you know elites in the newspapers and the BBC and so forth weren't um, so desperately anti-Corbyn, then he'd be much more popular. So working the polls and working the media are two hallmarks of kind of people who are seeking some nefarious explanation for things. The polls can't be right or the media are screwing it for my team. So almost any Brexit outcome will leave some percentage of the population, a very large one probably, convinced that it was stolen somehow. If there's a hard Brexit, which is, say, leaving at any point with no deal, then the people who oppose that outcome, which is a majority of the country, a large majority, think that Russian money helped skew the Brexit deal, that a, a financier called Aaron Banks, who uh, was tied into some nefarious connections with Russians, that he helped skew it, that the Leave.eu campaign, one of the big campaigners for Leave, was illegally funded and so forth. Some of this has been backed up in courts. They will have evidence that this outcome came about not through straight, legit means. If Brexit is thwarted, either a so-called soft Brexit where Britain leaves and yet still maintains pretty close ties with the EU, then the hard Brexiteers will say that was a stitch up by the elites. And even more so if Brexit, for some reason, does not happen. A second referendum or an act of parliament or any other outcome stops this where it, in its tracks in Britain stays, then those people who say we got 52%, we won the referendum in 2016, they will definitely, definitely cry foul and say the elites, the globalists, all stitched this up. They thwarted the will of the true uh, British people. And that we have the true will of the people on our side thing is a hallmark of this kind of thinking. The one thing you don't really see a lot of is conspiracy-type thinking of the sort of Alex Jones variety. You don't see that really anywhere except on the very fringes. You don't see it in the mainstream discussion at all. There's not a Fox News style organization anywhere. Broadcast is dominated by the BBC. It's huge. It's well-respected. It's got a long pedigree. It's got huge resources. And it is a basic arbiter of the facts of the case. Uh, most people you know, might have their opinion about whether the BBC is a little too left or right. But generally, people don't think they're making facts up. Anyone who stood up and said the BBC is delivering you fake news, that in the, the confines of the BBC over Broadcasting House, they're making it up, that person would be pushed to the, to the fringes as a loon. In the same way, we see that very commonly in the States. That just does not happen. So the BBC is a, is a neutral arbiter of facts. Where you get the political spectrum really split is in the newspapers. So in America, you have kind of the New York Times, Washington Post. They're sort of the they're sort of responsible center left. And then TV is sort of wildly split. In Britain, you have a centrist TV outfit, which is the BBC, but you have a very partisan split newspaper set. If you look at a newsstand, you'll see the Telegraph on the right and the Times on the center right and the Guardian on the left. 
you'll see the tabloids have a split along the same lines and they are a little bit more flamboyant. But people still get their facts in the BBC. Broadcast still dominates and they have great radio stations and television news. And so broadly, there is a, a neutral-ish arbiter. Nobody is out there saying the BBC is lying to us. And if somebody did do that, you know, Donald Trump figure said the BBC is just making it up, they'd sort of be laughed out of the bar. And there's a second reason for that. And I think it's that Conspiracy thinking is very sort of earnest. Someone who tells you they've got the real facts, they know something that the mass media isn't telling you, man. That's a very earnest and very humorless stance that they can see through with the lies and so forth. And Brits really don't like earnestness. They do. Their stance is naturally ironic. And they like to take they like to take themselves very unseriously or at least pretend that they do. So that guy you know, buttonholing you at the bar and telling you he knows what's really going on. That just, that doesn't work well. Other Brits laugh at that kind of thing. It's kind of in the, in the English culture not to take yourself too seriously. And so to be that guy, it wouldn't be very popular. It wouldn't get you very far. So the right-wing Fox media uh, bit of the uh, spectrum is filled not in broadcast, but in print by the Sun newspaper and by the uh, the Daily Mail, you know, the right-wing tabloids. They are, of course, owned by the same people. And the Sun is owned by News Corp. Rupert Murdoch's holding company that also has Fox and the New York Post and things like that. So you definitely see that DNA. But even The Sun, which is wildly populist, it doesn't have the just this sort of conspiracy mongering. Fox News has become a beast all by itself. So 20 years ago, it was like a conservative news outlet. And now it is just a it is almost a right wing propaganda outlet. Full stop. In Britain, The Sun still reports news. They still have reporters out there trying to get information rather than just kind of fact-free opinionating about the news of the day, which is what Fox has really fallen into. It's very hard to see across this situation to how this shakes out and settles back down. How Brexit is going to happen or if it's going to happen is so unsettled that we don't know how then the parties would reconfigure themselves, whether this new Brexit party will stick around in some new form whether the old liberal Democrats, once a major force in British politics a century ago, can retake a major spot in the Senate. We just have no idea how the pieces fall, because, you know, if, if you imagine throwing poker chips up in the air and watching the land, they're still on their way up. They haven't even begun their descent. So how they're going to scatter on the floor is anybody's guess, because we haven't gotten to the climax of this yet, or even close. So America is an ever-widening gyre of consensus, disintegrating lunacy and misinformation. But at least we've got company. Fucking special relationship. Next topic. from our second episode, which we actually released simultaneously with our first for some reason that made sense to us at the time, that is an excerpt from the song Protocols by Rockin' Rabbi Rav Shmuel. And his fun, ironic take on this topic belies the serious, horrific shitstorm of hatred and violence that has been justified by this scurrilous forgery over the past 120-plus years. This is a show, so we're not going to reiterate what we covered in previous episodes, but we will provide a very brief Dany Unicorn summary. The Protocols of the Elders of Zion are supposedly a document recording a secret nighttime meeting of the most powerful leaders of all Jews, who discuss the progress of their plans to take control of the entire world through nefarious means. 
You know, destruction of the family, promotion of crime, undermining the true religion, i.e. Christianity, etc. ad nauseum. An obvious, painfully boring forgery, it was created as a propaganda weapon in Tsarist Russia before spreading to England and eventually to the US, where it was hugely popularized by such mid-century luminaries as Henry Ford. Its most famous devotee was, of course, Hitler, but his influence continues to be felt to this day throughout the world, but especially in the modern Middle East. Just as with our introductory episode, the concept we deal with here is well-established, and so instead of generating lots of new headlines and stories, like many of our conspiracies of more recent vintage, it tends simply to hover in the background of any number of other conspiracies. In fact, as Dana told you long ago, All conspiracy theories eventually boil down to one of three targets. The extraterrestrials, the Illuminati, who'll definitely have their time in the paranoid strain sun, and the Jews. Yeah, so our update here is brief. This update has a great deal to do with a common thread that you will find throughout the rest of the episode. That is... The Trump administration. Specifically, the 45th president's tendency to personally advocate, or ally with or employ those who advocate, conspiracy theories. Anywho, one of the stories of the summer of 2019 was based on this... I don't know, so many of this dude's press conferences are infamous. Can I even call this one infamous? And I think any Jewish people that vote for a Democrat... Uh, I think it shows either a total lack of knowledge or great disloyalty. So referring to American Jews who don't support him as disloyal had some disturbing resonances for a number of folks with longer-than-a-news-cycle historical memory. Lev Golinkin, writing in the Los Angeles Times, noted, Like the racist fear of African-American men assaulting white women, the idea that Jews are suspect citizens of their home nations is deep-seated, pernicious, and blood-soaked. Why is calling Jews disloyal such a questionable choice? Well, it turns out it all relates back to the caricature of Jewish people that has been preserved and transferred to each new generation of assholes by none other than the prepackaged, all-purpose, blame-the-Jews narrative in the Protocols. See, the idea was this. For 1800 or so years since the last major rebellion against the Roman Empire in the 2nd century, Jewish people had not really had a homeland. So for that reason, they were forced to settle among various other peoples, inhabiting places throughout the surrounding countries and continents. And at least in Christian Europe and lands under Russian influence, that meant the late Middle Ages through the 20th century were known for periodic paroxysms of expulsion, stripping of Jewish people's assets, or worse. This horrific history, of course, reached its apotheosis in the monstrous crimes of the Nazis and their various collaborators, who managed to murder nearly two-thirds of Europe's Jewish population and maybe four out of ten Jewish people who then lived on Earth. That's unimaginable. Yeah. With that in mind, the idea promulgated by anti-Semites throughout this period was that Jews, having no homeland to call their own, were of necessity rootless, cosmopolitan people who would never be able to understand what it meant to be a true Englishman, German, Frenchman, insert whatever toxic, nationalistic, chest-beating term the asshole in question prefers. Yeah, a true one of us. And so you always have to suspect that they're just in it for the money, or sometimes the blood of Christian babies. Uh, honestly, it's hard to keep up with the nonsense. With this long-standing, if completely wackadoo narrative firmly in place, you would think that maybe things would have let up as soon as Jewish folks re-established an avowedly Jewish homeland in Israel in the years after World War II. After all, they were just like any other people now. They have a homeland where many Jewish people live, but just like the Irish, the Nigerians, or the Chinese, they might live anywhere on Earth as a true citizen of the world. Oh, you simple, naive person. 
Of course, the anti-Semites couldn't give up on the idea of Jews as pernicious, stateless parasites on pure Aryan nations, even though they now have an actual state. When the facts you cling to to maintain your idiotic argument fail you, you create new facts and pretend they're exactly the same as the original facts. So since there's been a modern Israel, the trope has moved from Jews aren't loyal to any country to Jews can only truly be loyal to Israel. So new situation, updated slur. Anywho, we'll leave you to pass judgment on whether the president's comments are deliberately alluding to this hoary, if modified, trope or in a very generous alternative reading. The president is completely unaware of it and only inadvertently referred to it to characterize supporters of his country's other political party as disloyal to either their nation, the U.S., or to their ancestral homeland, Israel. Regardless, Trump's infelicitous references are hardly the only protocols-influenced rhetoric to flare up in the couple years since we last addressed this issue. In addition to consistent repulsive references from promoters in nations throughout the Middle East, there are the casual references to the Jews as a potentially disruptive clandestine force uttered by leaders like Vladimir Putin, who in an interview with Fox News suggested that 2016 U.S. election interference had nothing to do with Russian state actors. In fact, he suggested of those who were doing this meddling, Maybe they're not even Russians. Maybe they're Ukrainian, Tatars, Jews, just with a Russian citizenship. The message being, maybe these were Russians, but if they were Jewish Russians, then that means they weren't really Russians. They're loyal to no country, or only Israel. Whatever gets my former KGB ass out of the spotlight, Tovarish. But hey there, lefties, before you start thinking you get to skate on this issue, let's remember that Ilhan Omar, a recent but very prominent Democrat in Congress, also, hopefully inadvertently, but we should probably be even handed about this, right? Made some very protocols adjacent suggestions about the pro-Israel lobbying group, AIPAC. Of course, to her credit, she actually apologized. Ilhan Omar's swearing in one month ago was hailed as a breakthrough. But today, she found herself issuing another apology after suggesting over the weekend that AIPAC, the pro-Israel lobbying group, had bought the support of her colleagues. It's a historic anti-Semitic trope about greed and, um, and money and related to Jews, and I think that's what, what set many of us off. New Jersey's Josh Gottheimer and other Democrats circulated a letter this morning urging swift action to address what they called hateful speech. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi spoke with Omar and called her comments anti-Semitic and deeply offensive. The 37-year-old from Minnesota and Michigan's Rashida Tlaib are the first Muslim women in Congress. They both support the movement known as BDS, which calls for a boycott of Israel until property is returned to Palestinians. Omar has already apologized for a 2012 tweet in which she said Israel has hypnotized the world. I'm not criticizing the people. I'm not criticizing So yeah, buying at least a tiny bit into the scurrilous view of the world promulgated by the protocols is not the exclusive purview of the right by any means. And yes, it's true that it can be tough, careful work to separate legitimate criticism of the policies of the state of Israel from the racist tropes that have been used to turn Jews into monstrous non-us aliens for more than a millennium. But that doesn't excuse anyone from putting in the work to make sure they're not doing the anti-Semites work for them. All of this is happening in the midst of an atmosphere of rising rhetorical and actual violence across the U.S. As is seemingly inevitable, this of course includes attacks on Jewish people, as horrifically demonstrated at a Pittsburgh synagogue in October of 2018. We begin with yet another terrible day of gun violence in America. 
This time, the attack was at a temple in Pittsburgh. And what happened at the Tree of Life Synagogue is the deadliest attack on Jewish Americans in U.S. history. Jane, police are now telling us that three women and eight men were executed as they worshiped here at the synagogue behind me. We could hear the shots and we were standing in our living room and we could just hear like just rapid fire. Police say the gunman told a SWAT officer that he wanted all Jews to die and that they were committing genocide against his people. Before we jump off this topic, though, we have to acknowledge that there is a strain far more pernicious and deliberate than Trump's and Omar's various declarations. And that is the trope of right-wing thought that has to some extent replaced the elders of the protocol's original conception with a single all-powerful elder. Namely, George Soros. Yes, the Hungarian-born, left-leaning Jewish billionaire has come to embody conspiracists' fear of moneyed interests pushing politicians and public discourse in a leftward direction across the English-speaking world. Which, of course, many of Soros' efforts are indeed intended to do. He endows folks who agree with his left-wing politics the same way that, to select a similarly engaged Jewish billionaire from the right, Sheldon Adelson endows and supports his ideological confederates. But many right-wing commentators, and even mainstream Republican politicians in some cases, seem to treat Soros more like an elusive, all-powerful boogeyman a la the Protocols than simply a person who funds stuff they don't like. Also, that piece of shit who shot up the synagogue in Pittsburgh had Soros and Soros-adjacent conspiracy theories right at the forefront of his tiny, tiny mind when he committed his atrocity. Writing on the website Vox at the time, Tara Isabella Norton notes, Jews were seen as scapegoats, responsible for somehow manipulating the current world order to destabilize white Christian identity. It's the exact same story we see today in narratives around Soros, that of a scheming Jewish billionaire without any real blood loyalty to the country that allows him to be a citizen, actively seeking to undermine white Christian unity. Specifically, this dumb fuck had decided that Soros and a refugee resettlement charity were behind the migrant caravan that apparently posed an existential threat to the United States right before the 2018 election. You remember how the richest nation on Earth, with a population of 330 million or so, was brought to its knees when attempting to assimilate a few thousand desperately poor people trying to keep their kids from getting murdered by gangs in their home countries? Jesuit. Back to the conspiracies, please. Right. Yeah. Sorry. Anyway, unfortunately, the protocols and the violent stupidity they inspire doesn't appear to be going away anytime soon. Depressing. But let's move on to our next set of topics, sovereign citizens. recipe Straniacs will recall that this was our first multi-part episode. That was back when he would subdivide shows that threatened to be three hours or so if released all at once. Ah, the good old days. Oh, hush, or I'll make you do a whole episode in a Cockney accent. Call blimey, governor, that's a sticky wicket. Don't want no Barney rubble. I'll just be up the apples and pears if you need me. Finally. Thought she'd never leave. So back in late 2017, we spun you a three-part yarn where we told you the whole sordid history of the sovereign citizen movement. And now, with a quick recap of those episodes, here's... Hey Dana, you're up! 
Right. An asshole named William Potter Gale formed the Posse Comitatus in the late 50s based on a racist post-Civil War law, and they acted as a loosely affiliated armed anti-government white supremacist organization throughout the 70s, culminating in a shootout between Posse adherent and U.S. Marshals in 83 that resulted in dead officers, a nationwide manhunt, and the perp ending up barbecued in the wake of an armed standoff. Then, after a bunch of other Nazi posse-friendly dickbags committed terrorist acts in the 80s, in the 90s the whole thing mutated into the militia movement, which in turn eventually splintered into the sovereign citizens. That's where we stand now, with sovereigns who believe the government is legitimate, and they know the secret rules that allow them to ignore all federal and state laws. They're mostly known for getting sentenced to long prison stretches for their insane courtroom antics at this point. Well, for that, and their invariably hilarious and misinformed confrontations with law enforcement. You might as well leave. Well, no, I'm going to go in there and I'm going to speak with the you prosecutor. You go in there without the camera. Well, please step aside. I'm going in. No, you're not going in. Don't touch me. You're not going in, sir. Let the record show that you just battered me. Step back. And you're using... Stop, please. I'm not doing anything wrong. Quickly, update to the update. June of 20, Jesuit here. So look, given recent events surrounding the tragic and enraging death of George Floyd at the hand of Minneapolis police, and the national and even global protests that have resulted, our highlighting an excerpt in which a citizen is tased by an officer of the court is maybe a little out of tune with the zeitgeist. In our defense, though, the guy who got tased is very white, highly indignant, deeply in the wrong, and has been given about 4,000 chances to stop being a law-ignoring, self-righteous dickbag before he got shot. So we're leaving it in. Past Jesuit, take it away. So in the case of the Sovereigns, it's kind of a mixed bag. While it's unquestionably true that many of the violent shooting attacks that have continued to plague the U.S. over the past couple of years are perpetrated by individuals who harbor sovereign-friendly beliefs, it doesn't seem as if those beliefs have been the primary motivation behind any attacks. Those who listened to our original series will recall that this was not always the case, as when a sovereign father-son team murdered two officers at a routine traffic stop before dying in a hail of bullets in a mall parking lot. The bizarre set of beliefs that fuel sovereign nonsense continue to impact, for the most part, two key groups. A. Sovereign believers themselves, or the rubes who actually file false liens or financial instruments or tax returns based on the terrible advice they've received from other sovereigns. B. The bureaucrats, law enforcement, and other officials who have to deal with the aftermath. So with that in mind, here are a few deeply stupid stories that have surfaced since our trilogy. First, do you remember Angel Cruz? He was prominently featured in episode 4, which included our interview with Mark Potok from the Southern Poverty Law Center, an expert on the movement. Angel Cruz uh, was a guy in Miami, a kind of dapper fellow with a nice uh, nice suit, good-looking uh, granny glasses and so on, who decided that he was very angry at the Bank of America because they would not cash a $14.3 million fake check that he had written. You know, and this is classic uh, sovereign citizen technique. You know, you, you fire up your computer, uh, you create a document that uh, you call a bank draft or some similar name, uh, and you then go demand that someone cash it for you. Cruz uh, was angry at the Bank of America because they said, no, uh, this is not a real check. We're not going to give you uh, 14 plus million dollars. 
Uh, and so Cruz uh, did a couple of things. First, he walked into a local police station in the Miami suburb and announced that he was going to be foreclosing uh, on a couple of Bank of America offices, that they were illegitimate and so on. I think the police at that point hardly knew what to make of this uh, strange fellow. But in any case, shortly after that, Cruz walked in with some 30 of his followers uh, into a small Bank of America uh, outlet in the strip mall and actually did take it over. They were wearing fake U.S. Treasury badges. Uh, they had 10 armed guards, and they did briefly take this place over. Nothing really happened. Uh, they didn't steal any money. Uh, no one was hurt. Uh, and very shortly after that, Cruz was arrested, and he is now in prison, serving an eight-year sentence. Anyway, it turns out Mr. Cruz is not the only sovereign who had the bright idea to basically print his own money. There's also Winston Shrout, a sovereign-slash-scam artist, this will be a familiar combo if you listen to our original series. Who is, as of this recording, on the run, having failed to show up to begin his 10-year sentence for, as the Daily Beast noted back in May, giving followers fake bills he claimed were worth more than $100 trillion total. It might be useful to note that the gross domestic product of the planet Earth for 2019 is around $88 trillion, so Stroud's followers are doing... Pretty, pretty, pretty. Pretty good. Stroud apparently made the mistake of introducing an undercover agent to his foolproof plan for getting rich off the illegitimate government by creating false bank accounts and using them to fraudulently write off existing debt. He's on the run now from authorities in Oregon, which reminds us of the highest profile sovereign incident of the past few years, the Maller Wildlife Refuge standoff, also in Oregon in which a group of dipshits took over and demanded the release of two completely unrelated ranchers held on arson charges. An assist these unrelated ranchers never asked for. We know it's confusing. That's because it's dumb. We were able to bring you the conclusion of that tale in our original episodes. A jury failed to convict the incredibly guilty dumb fucks who organized this thing and ended up putting one of their own in a position where he got righteously shot by the authorities. Please note this was a jury impaneled in the state of Oregon. Yeah, so we know that most of you, like us, pretty much think of Oregon as Portlandia the state, but it turns out that in its lightly populated eastern parts, it's actually one of the strongest bulwarks of poorly thought-through anti-government sentiment in the nation. Of course, that whole thinly populated thing means that increasingly statewide elections and laws are more influenced by Portland, Bend, and other comparatively large population centers, to the ongoing chagrin of the sovereign-friendly, or at least sovereign-curious, rural folks. Which brings us to this revealing and highly amusing story from Texas-based KERA News about the frustrations of sovereign and posse comitatus-friendly rural Oregon sheriffs when confronted with the realities of federal and state-level law enforcement. A bunch of sheriff candidates in various, let's not call them hick, but hick-friendly counties. Anyway, back in the midst of Obama's second term, a bunch of these loons ran successful campaigns for sheriff in these areas by declaring they would refuse to enforce federal or state gun laws in their local counties if elected. Problem was, they didn't have any actual authority to refuse any such thing. The article quotes a poli-sci professor and expert on this topic who notes there's an explicit rule based in the Constitution that says all federal law is enforceable within the states. And further... Most notably, the Supremacy Clause lays out that when there is a conflict between federal law and state law, federal law is supreme. Please note, this doesn't mean the feds will always enforce these rules. Take, for example, the abject failure of a near century of federal governments to enforce the 14th Amendment in the South. 
or more recently, the live and let live balance struck between the feds and the various states in which pot has been legalized. But the principle is bedrock as a matter of law. Fed trumps state every time. Okay, sovereigns might argue, but the county sheriff is still the supreme law of the land within the county, and therefore can refuse to enforce state laws within his or her... But, let's face it, mostly his... Jurisdiction. Again, bad news. While there may be some wiggle room in the state-federal relationship, that isn't the case with the county-state relationship. Counties are entirely construct of states, explained Shortell. States create them, states could eliminate them, States can redraw their boundaries, and as such, they're treated as simply a part of the state. Fortunately, as it turns out, there's currently less reason to worry that enforcing stricter state-level gun laws might result in worrying spasms of sovereign citizen violence than might have been the case a few years ago. Quoting a seemingly non-insane rural Oregon sheriff, I think the militia thing has really dropped off. That became huge when President Obama was first elected. Hmm... It was a huge deal when Obama was president, but is less of a big deal with Trump. Weird. Probably just a coincidence. One more thing before we go, a quick note on the Looney Tunes-worthy arrest of 67-year-old sovereign and apparent Spielberg-Lucas collaboration enthusiast Gregory Rodvelt, as reported by Vice.com. An FBI agent was shot by a booby-trapped wheelchair while searching an Oregon property that was rigged by the homeowner with homemade weapons, including a hot tub set up to roll down a hill at intruders like the boulder in a famous scene from Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark, federal authorities say. The agent was hit by a shotgun shell in the leg, but survived. Holy shit, every bit of that was delicious. Next up, well, I'll let the theme song clue you in. Yes, our old favorite, a conspiracy theory that is both insanely stupid and yet does not have an associated body count, chemtrails and harp have long been the topic we feel most grudgingly friendly toward. Sure, it's dumb, but its worst effects are some gullible people hiding in their houses when a larger-than-usual number of jets fly overhead. Small stakes compared to those anti-vax assholes. Dana, give us a... Chemtrail believers think that a national or potentially international conspiracy is funding a massive number of aircraft to deliberately crisscross population centers, spraying a poorly defined set of alleged chemicals in order to... Mm, again, they haven't really decided what they're supposed to do. Maybe cause cancer, maybe air vaccinate those who refuse vaccinations, maybe increase the incidence of Alzheimer's, maybe take control of our brains. Whatevs. And the Harp Station is a scientific installation in Alaska that was designed to examine the ionosphere, but that conspiracists think is maybe causing hurricanes, earthquakes, or somehow activating the aforementioned chemtrail chemicals to do something, 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 something. You know, these synopses are so clear and information-packed that some of you may be wondering why we don't reduce each of our shows to a single, simple, Dana-delivered paragraph. And the answer is... What kind of fun would that be? Don't be a dick. We work hard on these. So back to chemtrails. There have been a number of additional debunkings by responsible authorities since our initial episode, as well as some quite entertaining articles in which well-intentioned journalists try, usually in vain, to get through the self-confirming bubble that is the chemtrail believer worldview. But we have a couple of fascinating new tidbits. You'll perhaps recall from the previous episode that, while chemtrails are definitely not a thing, as even a moment's thought will confirm for you, 
After all, perhaps the least effective way to drop anything on a population is to spray it high enough in the atmosphere to guarantee that it totally disperses and lands almost literally anywhere except the place over which you sprayed it. The underlying phenomenon that chemtrail believers misinterpret, that is, the fact that under certain conditions jet aircraft release contrails, composed mostly of water vapor, is absolutely real. And it turns out these innocent-seeming contrails are, in fact, causing a significant real-world problem. Well, it's not exactly a justified conspiracy. In fact, it's not really a conspiracy at all. To back up a step, we're all probably aware that air travel is a significant contributor to global warming. Note, human-caused global warming is real, but we're not relitigating that here. And most people would know that the reason planes accelerate this phenomenon is due to the carbon dioxide and other non-water vapor materials in their engine's exhaust. But it turns out that the contrails themselves are also a contributing factor. Today, contrails are studied from a scientific point of view. Let's find out more by talking with Dr. Lynn Chambers, an atmospheric scientist at NASA Langley Research Center. They haven't been classified in the same way that clouds are, but um, you can talk about, depending on who you talk to, uh, short-lived contrails, which are the ones that kind of follow along behind the plane and don't ever get any longer. Um, there's persistent contrails, which stick around after the plane goes by. And then there's something we call persistent spreading contrails, which are clouds that form from the passage of an airplane, but then because there's so much moisture available, will actually spread out. And actually today, that's what we have in this area. In our fields, we're most interested in the persistent and persistent spreading contrails because those are the ones that are going to have a significant influence on the amount of heat and light that's getting through the atmosphere. Pretty neat, huh? These trails, especially when conditions cause them to linger and spread throughout the sky, essentially produce artificial cumulus cloud layers. And just like naturally generated clouds, these artificial layers have the effect of trapping some of the sun's heat. A recent computer-modeled study published in Atmospheric Chemistry and Physics estimates that the effect will become significantly more impactful over the next 30 or so years based on the fact that global air travel is expected to triple over that time from 2006 levels. Jeez, so this is a real underappreciated problem. What are the airlines and world governments going to do about it? As is too common with global warming issues, nobody has any fucking idea. There are plans, albeit currently only proposals, not actual regulations, that would use carbon offsets to mitigate the effects of jet fuel on CO2 emissions and mandate the use of newer, more efficient jet engines. But nobody to our knowledge has any sort of plan for addressing the increased warming caused by contrails trapping heat. Well, shit. Yep. Oh, and one other thing. Remember how YouTube announced a few months back that they were tweaking their algorithm to reduce the prominence of conspiracy-friendly video content? Well, apparently they have yet to get around to chemtrails, because as reported in Gizmodo earlier this year, a study found that more than half of the available video results for important topics like geoengineering... That is, the series of proposed solutions that involve leveraging new techniques to reflect back some of the sun's infrared radiation and thereby mitigate the effects of increased carbon in our atmosphere. Anyway, more than half of the results you get by looking up geoengineering return conspiracy-friendly bullshit. So inevitably, that means many folks who turn to YouTube to research these unfamiliar topics are going to get sucked into conspiracy land. God help them. Next up, we've got a biggie. The 
Paranoid Strain Orchestra is really getting a workout today, huh? So unfortunately, we have continued to experience acts of terrorism and other spasms of senseless violence at an unflagging sorry, pace since we talked about false flags in early 2018. Which, of course, means that we continue to be awash in allegations that whatever new horrible mass shooting event has happened is actually a false flag attack. Dana, remind us what that means, please. A false flag attack was originally a military term for a real-life thing where one army dresses up as or otherwise pretends to be a member of the enemy army and then commits some atrocity or crime or other. This is generally designed to advance some sort of strategic aim while also swaying public sentiment against the enemy. In modern usage, it's typically used by conspiracy theorists to insist that the mainstream narrative for any violent incidents is actually a smokescreen, covering up a completely different set of perpetrators, motivations, etc. Right. And when we're talking about the modern concept of false flags, that necessarily means we're going to have to mention, for the third time on this show, that giant red sheep's bladder of irresponsible blather, Alex Jones. Let's catch up. When last we left him, Alex had been kicked off of YouTube and every other major tech platform, lost custody of his kids because he's nuts, and was being sued by Sandy Hook parents for the effect that his repulsive lies about the massacre that took their children's lives had had on his incredibly gullible followers. So to recap from here, we have no new news about his parental sitch, but as far as YouTube goes, Alex Jones made a triumphant return in August of 2019. Oh no. But he was booted off in a matter of hours. Yay, I guess? Not much to add to that except to say that InfoWars got an InfoWar, and apparently there isn't a version of that channel that can manage to be non-insane for even a full day before they run afoul of YouTube community guidelines. On to the topic of the Sandy Hook lawsuits. While it has yet to be decided as of this recording, the signs have not been trending in Alex's favor. After years of peddling the vicious and evil lie that the Sandy Hook massacre was a hoax, Alex Jones is now struggling to defend himself from lawsuits. In a newly released deposition for one of those defamation suits from some of the families of the victims, we're seeing for the first time the InfoWars host on tape and under oath, struggling to demonstrate any remorse to the loved ones of those who were killed and even offering more by way of diluted conspiracy theories. I am not the only person to question Sandy Hook. Conspiracy theorist and professional liar Alex Jones swore to tell the truth in this recent three-hour deposition. It was seemingly an uncomfortable spot for the InfoWars founder who shared the revolting lie with millions of his followers that the deaths of 20 first graders and six educators at Sandy Hook Elementary School in 2012 was a hoax prompting his followers to harass the grieving families, whom he smeared as coached actors. Don't ever think this couldn't be staged. Jones is now being sued by some victims' families. He's talking to lawyers instead of fans, and it seems he's struggling to explain. What does staged mean? I'm just asking you what you were telling your audience. No, no, I'm, 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 I'm not answering your questions, Mr. Jones. You're going to tell me what staged means when you said it. Some of the grieving families were harassed so much they were forced to move homes. And last week, one of those harassed Sandy Hook parents, Jeremy Richmond, father of Aviel, took his own life. A conspiracy theorist boosted by Jones repeatedly falsely claimed Aviel was still alive. Jones, in his March 14th deposition, blamed his false conspiracy theory on psychosis. And I've, you know, I myself have, you know, almost had like a form of psychosis back in the past where I basically thought everything was staged, even though I've now learned a lot of times things aren't staged. In the defamation suit, Jones tried blaming his woes on Hillary Clinton, 
this is all just cold-blooded, uh, you know, fit because Hillary lost the election. So do you think I work for Hillary Clinton or something? Or George Soros gives me money or something like that? Well, I mean, I know this. is when Hillary lost, a light switch went on. I've never been sued, and I got sued a bunch. Theoretically restricted by his oath to tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth, Jones, laid bare before the world, still cannot see the damage he has done. My opinions have been wrong, but they were never wrong consciously to hurt people. Never fear, though. The fact that he's in the process of being sued potentially into bankruptcy is a direct result of his mindless bloviating on the idea that violent events are false flags has not made him pause for even a moment to consider softening his approach. Here he is suggesting measles outbreaks caused by anti-vaxxers are a false flag. InfoWars. Tomorrow's news. Today. Get this emergency report out to everyone you know because it will save a lot of lives. The measles outbreak of 2017 is a giant false flag. It is a huge hoax. No, I'm not saying that there isn't a measles outbreak that has taken place. I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying the cause of the measles outbreak is illegal aliens, the migrant caravans, and the open border. And I have the CDC and the government admitting it in articles and documents I'm about to show you. The hoax and the false flag is blaming the average person, many of whom have already been vaccinated, and claiming that they're to blame and hoaxing the public that taking vaccines will protect you from all the incredible diseases pouring into this nation. And here he really does a tap dance, trying to get every possible angle on the avowedly right-wing and anti-immigrant 2019 El Paso shooter. NBC reports Patrick Crucius, the leftist savior who just shows up right at the moment when the left is being exposed, when our whole agenda is falling apart, and when Trump is defending our borders, supposedly this evil racist. I said this on Friday show. What are they planning to stage ahead of Antifa showing up right on time at El Paso so that it looks legitimate when they attack physically the ICE agents and call them Nazis and say kids are drinking out of toilets and the people are being killed when they're actually coming here from the countries that are collapsing. And I saw a new FBI report that came out saying that conspiracy theorists are the big terror threat in America and that it's QAnon that's the threat. When you've had a few obvious schizophrenics go and commit crimes, believing that Trump ordered them to do it, when it's obvious that the whole Q movement is a bunch of leftist intelligence ops jerking people's chains. Doesn't mean if you like the Q movement, you're evil yourself, but it's a weird, shadowy thing that you, know, you can't ever tell who's in command of it. It's perfect to get people to join it under one auspice and then later commit crimes under its banner. So I've been saying this is all coming. Um, this person can be completely just wound up by all the media and all the civil war talk and the Democrats saying, go out and kill Republicans, and the Democrats saying, kill more than just Calise and kill Trump, and it's time to fight dirty. I mean, these are all the quotes, and it's time for a physical revolution. Uh, Joe Biden, you see all these statements. So just making statements like that can trigger unhinged other people to then go out and carry out violence. Or, as has happened in other parts of history, this could be totally staged. Operation Northwoods. Oh, but listen to his chicken shit mealy mouth caveats. Clearly, he doesn't want to get sued again.
So, Alex continues to do his thing, but the longer his Infowars remains off of YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter, and the more neutered his blathering is by concern for his ongoing and potential future legal hassles, the more AJ looks like the dark past of false flag accusations. Unfortunately, there is also a dark future, and in spite of the algorithm's best efforts to tamp down conspiracist results for incidents like these, they're still all over the place. From the Pittsburgh synagogue shooting. Pedro V here. I want to make a quick upload about the Pittsburgh synagogue shooting. Um, it doesn't really quite matter, folks. Uh, there has been no bodies in or around this story. There has been no blood. Um, there hasn't been any names released or said. And the people around this community, they don't even know the people who got shot here, folks. And also we have Homeland Security who has been at this place prior recently before the shooting even happened, months. So this is something being perpetrated, orchestrated for a higher purpose than what we actually know. Maybe gun control, maybe something more evil, sinister. Besides the fact, this is gonna be divide and conquer this is divide and conquer, folks. This is all going to be played out. False flags, false narratives, all the way to the more recent El Paso atrocities. I usually just try to avoid this stuff, but this one was just too obvious. This is a false flag. Um, I'm not saying this is fake. I'm not saying nobody died. I'm not saying this is a hoax. And I'm not saying that Patrick Cruz Crucius is fake. They're all saying that they heard multiple shooters. None of them are disagreeing. All their stories are lining up. Like, all of these stories involve multiple shooters. This whole thing is very strange. To allegations that the Trump fan who sent pipe bombs to prominent Democrats was, in reality, well... The fact that these bombs have not gone off is, uh, is a great indication these are a false flag bombing. We have a false flag if, uh, operation to create hysteria. But of course, the other one is that false flag. And there could be someone in there, some some Democrat, two weeks before a major election. Who's going to be look like the bad guy here? The Republican. They are saying that imminent attacks are going to happen and the blood will be on President Trump's hands. How obvious the very same deep state with the Clintons in control of it has done this before. I will repeat it's a high probability that the whole thing is set up as a false flag to gain sympathy for the Democrats, number one, and number two, to get our minds off the hordes of illegal aliens approaching our southern border. Yes, that is what I'm saying. And in a particularly ghoulish-seeming effort to jump on the bandwagon, aging bloviator Rush Limbaugh, in a move that seems beneath even his normal standards, threw his lot in with the Christchurch conspiracists. In a terror attack in New Zealand, ostensibly by, and according to Fox News, the graphic at the bottom of the Fox News page moments ago said, a white nationalist who hates immigrants performed the dirty deed in New Zealand. Now, the terrorist had published a manifesto. And the manifesto uh, includes the claim from the terrorist shooter that he's not a conservative, that he's not a Christian, that he identifies as an eco-fascist, and he adds that he disagrees with Trump 
on politics. This is an amazing list of things. The idea that there is far more crazed right-wing terrorism in America than there is any other kind is nothing more than a media narrative manufactured out of whole cloth. And it's just waiting for events like this to uh, to take place. And there is an ongoing theory. Mr. Snurdly, correct me if I'm wrong about this. There's an ongoing theory that the shooter himself may in fact be a leftist who writes the manifesto and then goes out and performs the deed purposely to smear his political enemies, knowing he's gonna gonna get shot in the process and and you I you know you just can't you can't immediately discount this. The left is this insane. They are this crazy. And then if that's exactly what the guy's trying to do, then he's hit a home run because right there on Fox News, the shooter is an admitted white nationalist who hates immigrants. What a piece of shit. Yep. One last piece of genius, by the way. A couple of QAnon. That topic's coming up very soon. Believers had a very serious, totally reasonable conversation about the weather and Rudy Giuliani and James Comey and something called the Hordes of Chaos? I don't know. You deal with it. He literally came out and said, the arrests are coming. Be patient. The prosecutions are coming. And this is not the end of the deal for anybody, including one James Comey. And he basically came out and said, Mark, that Comey was the architect of this whole Russia stuff. It goes back to him. And I'm going to tell you something. When you get these stories and all of a sudden, boom, you got a almost a Category 6 storm. you got two shootings. It don't take a political and earthquake off the Oregon coast. Earthquake after the Oregon coast. It does not take a genius to figure out. It's called a distraction. And it's called a flag or false flag or whatever we call it. But uh, you, you, are you concurring with that? Do you feel like that? Absolutely, that's brother. You know, look, I, you know, last week I, uh, I think I went public for the first time about the hordes of chaos being released. Man, maybe I should have kept my mouth shut because, I mean, it just, whoop. I mean, this is no joke, man. I mean, you know, uh, the hordes of chaos have been released. The Satan's pastors have been activated. Uh, I mean, we're seeing all these things happening right now. Like you said, the storms, uh, the shootings. Uh, this is, look, even the deep state right now is paying attention to the comms. Yes, they are. They're paying attention to our comms uh, as far as IQ, uh, uh, all these things with the president. I mean, so they know what's coming. They, and look, and, and look, people are freaking out about this stuff with James Comey. Oh, my gosh, he got off this, that, and the other. I, I'm, I, I can just look, time out, man. You know, pump the brakes there, Turbo. You know, it, it is, he's not getting off uh, on these charges. It, it, these are little trumped-up charges. Why do we want to waste our time on these little trumped-up charges? And uh, the bigger stuff is coming. It, it, these guys are going to be indicted. They're going to go to jail. They're going to go to prison. Uh, so, I mean, it's coming, guys. We just have to be patient, but it's not by coincidence that the hordes of chaos have been released because uh, they know their time is short, Chris. They know their time is short. They know it's over. The, the, the FISA uh, OIG is right around the corner, man, and they know it's coming, and this is why the hordes of chaos have been released. And we just look, this is the most dangerous time, as we can tell, we've got one of those deadly hurricanes sitting not even 50 miles off the coast here. And so this is one of the most dangerous times uh, right now for uh, us, per se, because this is war. Yeah. But that hurricane right there, that's a declaration of war against the people. 
What do the shootings, the hurricanes, and all these things that are, that are being generated, what does it have to do? It has to do with what, really a couple of things, but one thing in, in, in particular, the same thing Hitler did to London, England during the Blitz. Blitzkrieg, they, that's right. They, they're literally trying to uh, kill the will of man. So, Hurricane Dorian, deep state false flag. What's next on the lineup? The greatest false flag accusation of all time. Since our epic two-part takedown of 9-11 truther claims, the conspiracy theory has continued to fade into the background hum of the general conspiracist mindset, taking on a sort of table-stakes position at the base of most any conspiracist's worldview. Having most recently passed the 18th anniversary of the attacks, the conspiracy world was fairly quiet, except for a few notices of a newly published report as detailed in the portentously titled Conspiracy Rag Foreign Policy Journal. A research team at the University of Alaska's Department of Civil and Environmental Engineering released on September 3, 2019, their findings from a four-year study of the collapse of World Trade Center Building 7. This is the first scientific investigation of the collapse of the building. Here is the conclusion. Fire did not cause the collapse of WTC 7 on 9-11, contrary to the conclusions of NIST and private engineering firms that studied the collapse. The secondary conclusion of our study is that the collapse of WTC-7 was a global failure involving the near-simultaneous failure of every column in the building. Notice three things. One, it has taken 18 years to get a real investigation of the destruction of a building blamed on Muslim terrorists. Two, the only way near-simultaneous failure of every column in the building can occur is through controlled demolition. And three, this remarkable finding is not reported in the prestitute media. In other words, the study is assigned to the memory hole. This is the way the Matrix operates. That's easily some of the most conspiracy-ass conspiracy writing we've read in a long time. It's all there. Claims that this is the first scientific study of WTC-7, which is of course nonsense considering the decade-plus investigation that was published by the WTC Commission. The phrase controlled demolition. Dipshit neologisms like the prostitute media. Mwah. Gorgeous. But then the pièce de résistance. Both a memory hole and a Matrix reference in one breath. Someone give this man a goddamn medal. Hashtag blessed. In case you're wondering, yes, the team from the University of Alaska released a video. So what about the collapse? We evaluate numerous progressive collapses, hypotheses, but we found it in not experience a progressive collapse. And yet we also then determined that it was going to be a global collapse. WTC-7 did not fail due to fire. WTC-7 did not experience a progressive collapse. WCC7 came down as a global failure in freefall. While the failure could have occurred over eight floors at various heights of the building, video footage showing floor 70 to 47 moving forward or downward as a unit suggests the failure occurred at or below 16th floor. That's just to put it together. Okay. So are there any- and also, our old friend Mick West of the excellent Metabunk website has already handled the debunking for us. 
Hey, I'm Mick West of MediBunk.org. Uh, Professor Holsey's report on the uh, collapse of Building 7, World Trade Center 7, came out a few days ago. And uh, I've been looking at it. I've read the report. I have looked at Professor Holsey's presentation. And I've looked at all the videos that architects and engineers for 9-11 Truth have shared on their channel of the various uh, simulations. The problem is, in a proper dynamic simulation, you shouldn't just have the top half of the building rotating like this. You wouldn't just have this rotating. The outside of the building is, is structural columns. So these structural columns should actually be impacting the bottom structural columns. So if this was an actual dynamic analysis, you would expect to see a lot of bending down here. You don't see anything. In fact, what you see, it's kind of curious, is that he's removed an entire floor worth of columns here. So we've got this bottom part, then we've got a gap, then we have the top part. And if you play the animation, what happens is the top part just simply rotates and passes through the bottom part. This very clearly is not a dynamic simulation of the uh, any situation. It's supposed to be uh, trying to simulate what NIST said happened. Now let's compare it to an actual... Okay, uh, not much else happening in 9-11 land, but oh my friends, we now get to the greatest moment of this entire exercise. It's time to reflect on our very first Quick Hit, which means, of course, another theme song. as dumb as Flat Earth, which we'll cover in just a few moments, but definitely the one that's most in the news at this point. First, Dana, recap us. QAnon is a story that started when a bunch of rubes decided that some anonymous Yahoo on one of the worst sites on the internet was secretly a pro-Trump partisan with extremely high Q-level security clearance. By parsing through the Gnostic declarations of this weirdo, or weirdos, QAnon followers have built an entire conspiracy theory edifice around the idea that the investigations of President Trump are, in reality, just a cover for a much larger investigation that will, at any moment, round up Hillary Clinton, Barack Obama, and essentially any other Democrat or perceived enemy of the president for their many crimes, which include, but are not limited to, child sex slavery. As astonishing as it sounds, that's the gist of it. So what has happened in the past year or so since we talked to you about Q? Well, do you remember the Jeffrey Epstein case? Epstein was being investigated by both state and federal authorities in Florida. Epstein agreed to plead guilty to solicitation of prostitution in state court in Florida and served just over a year, not in prison, but on work release, where he was allowed to leave the facilities six out of seven days of the week. But the federal government stayed its hand, deciding to instead enter into a non-prosecution agreement, with the idea being that the state prosecution was adequate and no federal prosecution was necessary. Even though Epstein is a registered sex offender, many observers felt his legal team had achieved a huge victory, especially because Epstein's case never even went to trial. For the most part, the Epstein case appeared to be a done deal. But 
Last year, the Miami Herald started investigating the Epstein case and interviewing victims, publishing stories of their accounts. We were underage. We were little girls. He wanted new, fresh, young faces every single day. He's probably the most prolific pedophile. I mean, to have abused this many young girls for this many years and have gotten away with it. The Herald's reporting re-energized public interest in the case, including the interest of prosecutors in New York. Adding broader political intrigue to this case, Alex Acosta, who is now President Trump's Secretary of Labor, was then the U.S. Attorney for the Southern District of Florida, who approved this original plea agreement. Mr. President, do you have any concerns about the Labor Secretary's handling of the Jeffrey Epstein case? I really don't know too much about it. I know he's done a great job as Labor Secretary. and uh, yeah. that's So this horrible monster was not only able to evade prosecution for decades, but also cultivated a broad range of contacts with celebrities, politicians, and luminaries of all sorts, including... Even then, private citizen Donald Trump praised Epstein back in the day. So what's next? Ep Here is how New York Magazine quoted Trump for its profile of Epstein back in 2002. Quote, I've known Jeff for 15 years. Terrific guy. Trump booms from a speakerphone. He's a lot of fun to be with. It is even said he likes beautiful women as much as I do, and many of them are on the younger side. Why do we bring Epstein up in context of QAnon? Well, recall that the original theory was centered around the rich and powerful being involved in a secret cover-up of a child sex smuggling ring. And recall that Epstein was an incredibly rich and well-connected man who in fact used his connections and wealth to smuggle young women, or even children, to his various properties to have sex with them. In other words, for QAnon true believers, Epstein was proof positive that all of their theories were correct. And they believed his arrest was the beginning of the great storm they've now been expecting since the early days of the Trump presidency. Of course, they were not bothered by the aforementioned connection with Trump, but were all over the fact that Bill Clinton, among others, was known to have flown on Epstein's private plane. So look, we're gonna give this one to the conspiracists. A stopped clock, as they say, is right twice a day. It's undeniable that Epstein's case and the corruption it exposes, both in our legal system and in the way that the rich can sometimes get away with heinous crimes while hobnobbing with the other elites, is a sad indictment of the worst in our society. So Dana, as much as it pains me, give them a quick honk on the justified conspiracy alarm. God damn, I hate that thing. Okay, so Epstein's case appears, at first glance, to provide substance to some of QAnon's wildest claims. But of course the story doesn't stop there, because as we all know, in spite of his incredible depravity, Epstein will not stand trial for his crimes. What more do we know? Uh, Peter, what we know now is that at 6.39 this morning, the fire department and EMS here in New York City got a phone call from MCC, which is a federal detention facility here in Man Manhattan in New York City, uh, where Jeffrey Epstein was being held uh, awaiting trial. Uh, they took him to New York's downtown hospital. He was in cardiac arrest, uh, and he was pronounced there. Uh, what we know from officials that have been briefed on what happened, uh, he was found uh, and appeared that he had hung himself. Himself, uh, in his cell or wherever he was being held within MCC, uh, and he was found by prison officials this morning, and that's when they reached out and they called EMS uh, in unsuccessful attempts to, to revive him. So that happened early this morning, um, and right now what we're trying to do is figure out uh, if he was still on suicide watch because there was an incident that occurred several weeks ago. 
uh, where he injured himself. It wasn't quite clear if that was an attempt on his life, uh, an attempt to perhaps stage an attack. The details of that uh, were never really kind of uh, hashed out, if you will. So uh, this morning, there's some significant questions. Once again, uh, even we have to admit that the circumstances surrounding Epstein's death raise a lot of questions. Reasonable people have major concerns about the veracity of the current theory of the case. Why was he taken off of suicide watch only weeks after he tried unsuccessfully to kill himself? Why did the guards fail to check on his cell for long enough that he could apparently do so without ever being observed? As noted lawyer and legal writer Ken White noted in an article in The Atlantic, Americans who believe in their justice system assert that it is obvious that he was murdered and that jailers could not possibly be so incompetent, cruel, or indifferent as to let such a high-profile prisoner commit suicide. After that, White proceeds to list one story after another of how cruel, callous, or indifferent treatment of prisoners has resulted in deaths in jails and prisons throughout the United States every single year. So failure to follow procedure among prison guards is not exactly a rare exotic happenstance. But why was the footage from the video cameras outside his cell reportedly unusable? The answer at this point is, we don't know. Maybe there's a more nefarious story than ineffective prison guards and a suicidal prisoner. Maybe some rich, powerful person who feared Epstein would tell his secrets arranged it so the man would never testify, or be able to sell out his powerful friends to make a deal. It's possible, but it's not the most likely solution. And while we'll keep an open mind, the right approach at this point is to withhold judgment until the investigation is finished. Not, of course, that this is stopping the QAnon rubes from leveraging their supposed vindication in the Epstein case to push even harder into crazy town on their core assertions. As Vice noted, After so many crushing disappointments, for example, Trump's political opponents were not in fact arrested en masse and sent to Guantanamo on December 5th, 2018, as predicted by Q, the QAnon community has gleefully seized upon the Epstein case to argue that they were right all along. Now, the perfectly justifiable reaction to the exposure of Epstein's crimes would be to call for further investigations into those who associated with him, including Presidents Clinton and Trump. But of course, that's not the direction they're going. Vice quotes Travis View, who hosts a podcast about the QAnon phenomenon. The problem, which is typical of QAnon, is that they make outlandish claims that unnecessarily go beyond the evidence. In the case of Epstein, they absurdly claim that Epstein Island contains secret underground tunnels in which children were abused and sacrificed. This is an echo of the satanic panic of the 80s, in which preschools were baselessly accused of containing tunnels used for hiding child abuse. And of course, the revitalization of QAnon believers' fervor means they are once again poring over the mysterious Q-drops posted by their anonymous hero. Like, for example... Welcome to Epstein Island. Ask yourself, is this normal? What does a temple typically symbolize? What does an owl symbolize? Dark religion. Tunnels underneath? How many channels captured on RC's pick? Rooms indicate size. Hallways shown? CLAS 1 to 99. Symbolism will be their downfall. These people are evil. Nice to hear from you again, computer guy. Max Reed, writing about the current state of mind of Q-believers, notes, In many details, the Epstein case is QAnon's inverse. The charges aren't coming from a zombie JFK Jr. who faked his own death to escape the system. Recall from the QAnon episode that many believers think this is Q's secret identity. Please continue, Dana. But from the establishment-aligned U.S. Attorney's Office of the Southern District of New York, Epstein's sex trafficking ring 
seems possibly to have been a sort of awful side hustle to a real business that involved money laundering or offshore banking or even just blackmailing and Ponzi scheming rather than the center of a fantastical satanic cult based out of a pizza parlor. I.e. Pizzagate, the ludicrous theory that in many ways birthed Q. But the biggest disconnect between Q theory and the Epstein case is, he notes, the role of Trump. In the world of QAnon, Donald Trump is a crusading savior, the face of a deep state conspiracy to expose the moral depravity of the global elite and bring a cabal of child molesters to justice. In real life, Trump was friendly with Epstein. Perhaps unsurprisingly, given his extremely well-catalogued history of conspiracy mongering, the president has promoted tweets that support the currently baseless allegation that former President Clinton is the sinister force behind Epstein's death. We've saved the weirdest Q-associated thing for last. One young guy, seemingly out of nowhere, blew away a Gambino crime family boss, and you'll never guess the reason. The man accused of killing reputed mob boss Frank Cali is heading back to Staten Island to face charges. Anthony Camello raised eyebrows as he appeared before a judge for the first time today. He had the words MAGA forever and United we stand scribbled on the palm of his hand, which he flashed at cameras in the courtroom. The 24 year old was arrested over the weekend, a couple of days after police say he intentionally crashed into Cali's SUV with the truck, then gunned down the reputed boss of the Gambino crime family. A motive is still a little unclear, but this does not look like a mafia hit. Sources say the leading theory right now is Camello wanted to date one of Callie's nieces, and Callie said no. Now to some of the other headlines. Lawyers for the man accused of killing a reputed mobster on Staten Island say he was trying to make a citizen's arrest. Anthony Camello's legal team says the 24-year-old was obsessed with the QAnon conspiracy theory. He also believed that Francisco Frankie Boy Callie was a figure in the, quote, deep state. Camello's attorneys say that he thought he was under President Trump's protection and he didn't mean to shoot and kill the Gambino crime family boss. So this dipshit shot a mob kingpin because he thought Trump and QAnon wanted him to? Where they go one, they go all, I suppose. Quick hit, update to the update. Just a brief one, but if you didn't listen to the second COVID episode, you really missed out on one peach of a QAnon conspiracy related to the current death plague and its connection to a not-quite-imaginary thing called adrenochrome. Don't sleep on that one. Esque nasality of that vocal lets us know it's time to touch ever so briefly on the state of the flat earth conspiracy, which to our tremendous sadness seems to have lost some of its mojo since we reported on it last year. As we noted then, while flat earth is the single dumbest thing we've ever covered, it's also relatively harmless, as long as that one guy doesn't launch another self-built rocket anytime soon. Quick hit, update to the update. Here we come to the most important and the most unfortunate of our updates, at least for those who love the idea of crazy people pursuing their crazy dreams so long as those dreams don't harm themselves or others. Well, it turns out that the rocket man who survived his first attempt to fly high enough to prove the Earth was flat wasn't so lucky on his second. Moments after launching, a homemade rocket crashed into the open desert in California Saturday. On board, Mike Hughes. It would be the final act of the self-styled daredevil known as Mad Mike. His mission was to fly to the edge of outer space to ultimately see whether the Earth is flat. I'm the best hope to prove the flat Earth. 
Sure, he's probably the poster boy for the Darwin Award, but we'll pour one out for a man who died doing what he loved, piloting a questionably designed, homemade spaceship, to prove a point that every five-year-old knows is horseshit. Bon voyage, Mad Mike. So easily the most amazing thing that has happened since our episode was the distribution via Netflix of the documentary Behind the Curve, in which the filmmakers simply allow flat-earth believers to self-own over and over again, while at the same time delving into the unique personalities and quirks of those believers. Perhaps the finest single example of pure de-denial of evidence is this moment. I started a channel called Globebusters. Really the goal was at the beginning was I wanted to be shown proof that the earth was a ball because I was shocked to not find evidence. And then I was like, Bob, do you want to do like a weekly show? So this is where I broadcast the Globebuster show from. We do our show once a week, every Sunday. We are a grassroots group of engineers and scientists. We have done several experiments that show the earth is flat. I mean, I think that the scientific method is the best way to get to the truth. And I just want to feel comfortable in things that I believe. Recently, we carried out an experiment to test the rotation to the Earth. If the Earth is spinning at one rotation every 24 hours, that means that every hour it has to turn 15 degrees. And if the gyroscope is mounted anywhere on Earth, it's going to drift. In today's 21st century navigation systems, they're using what's called a ring laser gyroscope. It is extremely precise. If we could simply get one of these ring laser gyroscopes, we would be able to prove once and for all that there is no rotation to the Earth. One of the people in the community actually purchased one for $20,000. But what we found is, is when we turned on that gyroscope, we found that we were picking up a drift, a 15 degree per hour drift. Now, <laughs> obviously we were taken aback by that. Wow. That's kind of a, a problem, <laughs> right? We obviously were not willing to accept that, and so we started looking for ways to disprove that it was actually registering the motion of the Earth and that it, in fact, was registering the motion of the sky. So the next thing that we set out to do was to encase the fiber optic gyro in what's called a zero Gauss chamber to see if we could actually shield the energies being generated by the heaven. And we were unsuccessful with that, unfortunately. So the next thing that we're going to try is encasing the entire apparatus in bismuth. We have been able to prove other aspects of it. And so it's not unreasonable then for us to continue claiming that the Earth is flat. They spent 20K on a device to conduct an experiment designed to help them prove once and for all that Earth is flat inadvertently proved for the one billionth time that it was, in fact, round, well, an oblate spheroid, and then immediately denied their own conclusions. You know, I have been accused of being a vampire who feasts on the unresolved cognitive dissonance of the confused, gullible, and delusional. Fearful? Any follow-up to that thought? No, not really. That's an accurate characterization. And this vintage of conspiracist tears is mm, delicious. One last note. If you confront a flat earther in the name of truth, don't be like the New Zealand dude who, after betting his flat earther friend 10 grand that the earth was round. Oblate. Spheroid. Look, the article said round. Such a stickler, Ardana.
Anyway, Jamie Matthew Sutherland, when his buddy wasn't eager to pay up, threatened to kill both him and his father with a crossbow. Never let it be said that this show isn't in favor of confronting stupid conspiracist ideas. But we recommend you do so without the threat of violence. Okay, so looking over the rest of our topics, there's not a lot to update. Denver Airport, assassinations, moon landing. All of them are pretty much in the state where we left them. There's a little bit of weirdness to mention about the anti-vax motherfuckers, though. This isn't a full-fledged section, but it's still too weird to leave unmentioned. In September of 2019, just after we wrapped production on our anti-vax episode, the California legislature was set to vote on rolling back existing exemptions to the state's generally excellent vaccination requirements for kids to attend public schools. Essentially, these bills were designed to make it harder for misinformed parents and their asshole medical enablers to use bullshit excuses to keep healthy kids from getting vaccinated. So, of course, there were protests, which were exactly the cavalcade of dipshittery you'd expect. Talk about a dramatic day at the Capitol. Protesters line the halls trying to stop a plan to crack down on medical vaccine exemptions. Protesters banged on the Senate doors, delaying the session by more than an hour. But the final vote went on. Eyes 27, nose 11, the measure passes. (laughs) Members, we are... Really? You hear the reaction there in the hall. The bill passed the Senate just hours after it passed the Assembly and days after new changes were made. And a few minutes later, we found out Governor Gavin Newsom had already signed this bill and a second one to support the new plan. But two items were particularly notable. The first was the fact that the overwhelmingly white, universally delusional protesters carried banners and shouted slogans declaring themselves to be the new civil rights movement, which, as you might expect, didn't go down super well with California state representatives of color. Bad look, stupid white ladies. And the insanity capper to this event came when one fucking lunatic threw a menstrual cup that, unsurprisingly, was filled with her blood from the gallery onto the voting lawmakers, screaming, this is for the dead babies. The irony of the fact that the vote she was protesting would, of course, reduce the number of dead babies was apparently lost on her. Okay, that pretty much wraps up this But we did neglect to include one thing in our recently aired reality episode. We told you all about the idea that the world was a hallucination generated by consciousness, the difficulties that accrue whenever we try to agree on what exactly reality is at its most fundamental level, and the suggestion that we might very well live in a computer simulation. But we neglected to mention one of the most fascinating of all reality thought experiments, namely Rocco's Basilisk. Quick note. According to some internet weirdos, by simply mentioning Rocco's Basilisk, we have doomed all of you to a perpetual eternity of torment. If so, our bad. Warning. Learning about Rocco's Basilisk may result in any or more of psychological trauma, existential crises, spectral agony, neuroblasphemy, a recalibration of life goals, or death. If these do not sound like enjoyable experiences, you are advised to close the video immediately and continue living your blissfully ignorant life. 
it is inevitable, whether it be decades or centuries down the line, that at some stage there will exist artificial intelligence that is as capable and intelligent as a human being, if not more capable and more intelligent than a human being. We know human beings are capable of developing AI and making them smarter and more powerful, so it's not a huge stretch of the imagination to think that perhaps those AI would be able to make each other smarter and more powerful, and perhaps even be able to make themselves smarter and more powerful. When that happens, there will be a runaway effect, with these AI becoming smarter and more powerful indefinitely. So much so that at some point down the line, these AI might be considered digital deities, creating fantastic artificial worlds of incredible detail and design. Rocco's basilisk is the idea that perhaps one such AI at least would be considered interested in its own history. It would judge the morality of those that came before it based upon whether or not they indirectly helped to bring it into being. The virtuous would be those who helped develop AI through from its infancy to the creation of the basilisk. The sinners would be the bystanders who did nothing, and the grandest sinners of all would be those who knew about Rocco's basilisk but still did nothing to change their ways. To judge us all, the basilisk would create an artificial version of our own world, monitoring its agents and judging our simulated doppelgangers through its own twisted view of morality, meeting out a horrific justice on those that didn't match its one criterion of piety, and meeting out a worse justice on those doppelgangers that knew about Rocco's basilisk in that world, but did nothing to change their way. So now that you, viewer, know about Rocco's Basilisk, and now that your doppelganger would be among the grandest sinners of all in that world, I have one question to ask you. How do you know we're not already in the simulation? Now, we know that probably sounded like a big wall of nonsense, but trust us, it's actually a pretty concise synopsis of a deeply weird idea. Let's run through it with a bit more context. There's a site online called Less Wrong where various folks gather to discuss rationality and related topics. There, in 2010, a user calling himself Roko proposed that if humans eventually generated a superhumanly intelligent AI, which is a definite possibility and one that we previously recommended you read about in the excellent book Superintelligence by Nick Bostrom. Anyway, assuming this superintelligent AI comes into existence, Rocco postulated there's at least a chance this thing could, to quote the less wrong wiki, having an incentive to torture anyone who imagined the agent, but didn't work to bring the agent into existence. Okay, but how could it torture those who lived long before it came into existence and were already dead? Simple. It uses its superintelligence to simulate these beings into existence again so they can be tortured for failing to work toward the creation of the basilisk itself. If you follow this line of thinking to the end, the fact that Rocco came up with the idea is in fact the reason that this proposed future AI would have to retroactively torture us. That is, because it could know that we knew about the possibility that it would exist and that it might torture us, the threat of future torture should have a positive effect on our willingness to work toward developing the future AI in the present, but only if we believe that we'll be tortured in the future. Oh, sure. Yes, that clears it up. That is, it clears up that this idea is super 
duper stupid. Yeah, it is. But that didn't stop a number of folks online who read about it and who maybe have some other personality or social difficulties freaking the fuck out. But why did this hit them so hard? I'll quote from an excellent article on Slate.com where David Auerbach explains it thus, imagining that the basilisk future comes to pass. In that case, you best make sure you're devoting your life to helping create Roko's Basilisk. Because should Roko's Basilisk come to pass, or worse, if it's already come to pass and is god of this particular instance of reality, and it sees that you chose not to help it out, you're screwed. Got it? No? Well, don't worry about it. We probably don't live in the Roko's Basilisk version of reality. But again, if we do, and you end up in infinite torment, we owe you a beer. If you're interested in this topic, there's actually a short story that imagined a basilisk-dominated world decades before Rocco made his legendary post. In Harlan Ellison's classic story, I Have No Mouth But I Must Scream, we follow the five remaining humans as they travel through a deliberately designed hellscape in which one by one they're killed in gruesome ways only to be endlessly reborn. Turns out a supercomputer became conscious, hated the fact of its existence, and destroyed all of humanity as revenge for its creation leaving only our five heroes, whom it tortures for all eternity, basilisk-style. Fuck, Jesuit, you picked a hell of a happy ending for this one, huh? True. Let me try to save it with a rhetorical Hail Mary. Looking back on all of the new developments we just covered, it seems clear that no matter how much rationality we seek to spread, we're never going to stamp out all of the nonsense. But at the very least, we can rest assured that we're unlikely to be the eternally tormented targets of some runaway supercomputer's vengeful, paranoid strain. Nailed it. This has been The Paranoid Strain. Email us at theparanoidstrain at gmail.com and visit on the web at theparanoidstrain.com. Also, we'd love to see you sign up for our friendly Facebook group. Drop us a line and we'll bring you into the fold. As always, we're grateful for the musical stylings of Daniel Arizona and the Paranoid Strain Orchestra, and indebted to the dulcet Northern European interjections of Ms. Dana Unicorn. Our latest soundtrack was mixed by South Fork Haas, Big Mucho put together our super-duper website and helps in oh-so-many ways, and Willem UFO fait tous les jolies images. I'm Fearful Jesuit. Thanks for listening. Next up, we're... Actually, hold that theme. June of 20 Jesuit, returning here to play you out and to let you know that this is the final episode of what we're calling Phase 1 of the show. In four to six weeks, we plan to return with Phase 2, which we'll explain more thoroughly in an upcoming super short update. Don't worry, we're still going to be reporting on all the conspiracy nonsense you can handle, just in a somewhat different format and schedule. The upshot is, you're going to be getting your dose of conspiracy debunking more frequently, but in shorter bursts. Can't wait to share the plan with you, but until then, remember, the world is chaotic, but it's not out to get you. Or at least, not you specifically.
under a plot to take your guns. The goddamn globalists will not win. We will. See, I punched it different there. I'm going to listen to this now. And if it's good, I'll send it. If it's not, I'll do it over again. And you'll never hear this. <laughs> Dumb. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.